Oh my god, that's so funny. You should be one of the many people writing cat poems. Well, I've, she's she's shown up in a handful of them. I'm I'm waiting I'm till sure. I'm waiting till I have like ten or so that I could try to shop around as a chapbook. Oh um, my god, yes, I would totally read that. <laughs> Hello, friends, and welcome to uh, season three, episode eight. I think I checked yesterday, and I fuck. I think it's eight. If it's it's either eight or nine, but whatever. Um, of so poetry. Um, I apologize up front uh, for any sniffling that I've been doing. Um, it's it's like pollen release count number I don't know, like sixteen or twenty in Baltimore, and it's just every time the weather gets warm again, it just wrecks me. Um, so I'm currently a little stopped up, so I apologize for that. But uh, that out of the way. Um, I am recording with a super, super rad poet, uh, Joanna Valente. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about yourself or introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I mean, I would probably just say that I'm a really nerdy poet and visual artist. I did not know um, that aspect. I, yeah, so I, I am a visual artist, and most people don't really know this about me because I'm really private about saying <laughs> art. Um, but I was actually a visual artist before I was a writer, so I think oh, wow. that's why my writing probably tends to be so based in weird, surreal images, because I actually think in images before I think in words or language, which wow. I mean is... Well, we all do because, like, language is just a metaphor or yes. a symbol, you know, for what we feel. And mm -hmm. it's not actually um, – we just translate really fast in our heads, basically, yes. I guess is what I'm saying. So I do a bunch of things like that. I edit a bunch of journals and magazines, and I teach for an organization. Basically, I do too many things like <laughs> any New Yorker does. I'm kind of a stereotype. And I feel like – Poets. I, I was at a reading earlier this week and talking about just kind of the, the landscape for teachers and writers. Um, and it's been, at least in my experience, um, and I, I have yet to meet somebody who has refuted this, so I feel pretty confident in this, that <laughs> there's, there's not really a way for a poet in the United States to make a living being just a poet. It's always like, I'm a poet, but I also like teach or i edit oh, a bunch sure. of magazines or journals or you know like I'm, I'm involved in this organization that has absolutely nothing to do with poetry um and i i feel like i mean i feel like most writers probably experience or you know like most artists are probably in in the um in the realm of i do my art but I cannot live with the funding for my art, so I have to do something mm -hmm. else. But I feel like with with, with poetry and with poets, it's it's much more distilled, um, because like nobody nobody's making nobody's making nobody's making money like no at of all, not. Um, which I actually think lends um, a sort of I don't know maybe a uh, oh crap what's the word. Um, Man, 
This is why I don't I don't podcast in the morning. Um, <laughs> I know I'm like an old lady. I'm, <laughs> like the morning, it's great. I'm awake for hours already. Yeah, I've I've sometimes been up... sometimes not. Yeah, I've I've so I I typically get up. This will hopefully be a small tangent. I typically get up around seven for work during the week, and after doing that for four years, like I can't I can't sleep later than that, regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, which is can be kind of annoying when um not this aspect about my partner is annoying but just the circumstances can be sort of like oh well this this sucks that my my partner (laughs) sleeps a lot so when i spend the night with her like i'll be up at seven just because i can't sleep anymore and i'm like i don't know Uh i don't know what to do with myself for like two or three hours while she's still absorbing as much sleep as she needs but anyway i feel like i feel like because there's no money in poetry trying to get back to this um (laughs) there is much more of a sense of collaboration or at least much less of a sense of like competitiveness because Hmm. I feel like in situations where money or like a substantial amount of money is available, but it's the access to that is rather limited. Then there's, I feel like there's much, uh, a much higher chance of, or much higher tendency of people to be competitive to go after that. But when you kind of eliminate that, capitalist you know bent or that mm-hmm. drive then it's you know it's like nobody nobody's really pushing to make a ton of money or trying to edge other people out because there's like no one <laughs> no one's gonna get it i think that's true but i also think that's not true actually i feel like it's it's one okay. of those situations where it's like duality if that makes sense because on one hand you're totally right you know like nobody makes money from poetry like i clearly (laughs) like have a day job that Mm -hmm. i go to um which is totally fine like i'm one of those people that like i don't need my art to make me money although of course like it'd be great if it did but i also like having outside inspiration so on one hand i think you're totally right like i think like beautiful things happen when you don't have to worry about monetizing your art because you're just not going to and like you do all sorts of like weird experimental Mm -hmm. things and like push yourself to like discover different parts of like either your identity or someone else's or like really think about you know what is around you in mm-hmm. some kind of sense that might not be totally seen. Cause that's obviously what a writer's job is like not to totally like get nerdy, but to like quote Henry James. Like he said that in his, like the art of prose that like all writers should be sponges. And I think, you know, like Ooh. that's especially a poet's job is to be a sponge and kind of like say what other people might not see. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's the most ideal like way to look at art in general but on the other hand i think like the sort of negative side of it like that poets don't make money besides the fact that like capitalism sucks and like you know people should make money from their art right yeah um i think it's the fact that actually when you don't monetize it which does make it less competitive because people are like oh you got like 400k for your like you know Mm -hmm. book or something i think then reputation becomes monetized if that makes sense so then i think people get really competitive about like 
who's seen as like the best poet, who's like the uh, coolest and like who's doing all of this stuff. Yeah. And then I think it becomes this really strange, like competitive, like click, especially like on social media, because like you're supposed to be doing all of these cool things all the time and like show up to like all the galas and the parties. And I think that's especially hard when you don't live in a major city like New York yeah. or oh, like yeah. LA where like, there are those things and like I'm obviously privileged I live in New York City so like I am able to go to a lot of readings but I think it automatically also creates this like very classist like racist and sexist kind of environment where like the more privileged you are like the more access you have to these things and I think when you don't have that access then like you sort of have like less social cred so to speak so i think like there's all sorts of ways to look at like what is monetization or like what oh yeah you know what i mean so i think it's so complicated which like makes me sad because like i think like no matter what you know like there's always going to be competition in art especially because i think of social media so like now everybody has access which is a good thing that everyone has access but it also kind of puts this pressure on you even in your like everyday life i think that's unsustainable and like unhealthy because then it's like thinking you're thinking about it too much i guess is what i'm right saying yeah yeah and i i I hadn't considered which i guess is the 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 i don't know like complementary or inverse aspect that like you said that because there's there's no like physical tinder involved with (laughs) um you know the with poetry and and money in that respect that the like reputation or access is the thing that is then like commoditized mm-hmm. um, you know like how many like where you've published how often you've published um access to uh like readings or fellowships or grants or some residencies that you know it's like if you go if you get into a particular residency it's like you know that's sure you know, like other doors will open up because those are viewed as the sort of like, I don't know, like gatekeepers or like the the high quote unquote high institutions of like, Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, if if you've done this, then obviously, you know, like, which on the one hand I can, I can kind of see that if you can get into the, some of the more competitive or some of the more well-known, you know, like residencies, it's like out of the merit of your work and that, you know, like you, it's, it's, that your your work is of a quality that is you know deemed whatever you mm-hmm. know like good enough to get into there but there is kind of on the back side of that which i think for you know like any any publication or anything that you have to submit your work to it's it's that sort of initial subjectiveness of you know like it's totally up to the to the the subjective reading of some judge of whether or not you're going to get this. Sure, of course. And I mean, I also think like a lot of it, it's interesting because we're in a time where things are becoming more inclusive or at least people are aware that things should be more inclusive. But at the same time, I think like the institution is still so closed to so many people. Yeah. And I think like the idea of like MFAs and residencies and all of these things are like the sort of, you know, manifestation 
of these things because you get an MFA if you have the time and the money right. to do it, mm-hmm. basically. You know, and I have an MFA. So, and I'm saying this as someone who has it, and like I recognize like the privilege that I had the time, you know what I mean, to oh, do it. Yeah. And stupidly, I had the time to do it because like I just took out a bunch of student loans like a dumbass because, <laughs> you know, I was young and didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. But I think like that idea is perpetuated because we feel like if we don't have this fancy ass degree then you're not going to be able to teach and you're not going to be able to get a book deal and you're not going to be able to like get as many publications because people won't take you seriously right. mm-hmm. and i think that is changing which i think is a good thing that it's changing but i think it's a slow ish change oh, yeah. and i think it's something that like even when i went to grad school which wasn't like that long ago like it was about seven years ago i felt like that was just something you were supposed to do. And I think ever since I graduated, it's been questioned a lot more, but I think even that alone just shows like the sort of gateway nature to poetry that isn't in as many other industries. Because I think like, for example, you know, if you're a musician, you're not necessarily going to get an MFA in music. Like you don't have to do these things. Like people do, you Mm -hmm. know, especially if you're like, a composer you might want to do that right but it's not like a prerequisite to get a record deal right yeah so and like, i whereas it, like a lot of people like publishers won't even like look at your manuscript unless you have like that mfa right line which is ridiculous and like i think that you know yeah it's hard and fiction writers have the same thing but i think even with fiction writers you know if you have a good enough pitch for an agent or like an something that's provocative enough for an agent to sell. Like you don't necessarily have to have the crazy credentials, but I think because poetry is so academic, people often like associate it with the same institutional stereotypes, Mm -hmm. which I think is bad in general, because it's also like when you go to college, you're being taught by an institution. It's not really benefiting most people anymore. Yeah. And also like, well, with with the the music aspect of it, that like you're right that I I feel like most people would go to you know like some some aspect of higher learning for music, um, like specifically like a higher like degree if they wanted to teach. Like that to me is that exactly. that sort of path. And I I a lot of the um the friends of mine that I like I I did an MFA. Oh geez, I graduated in. 2014 i think mm-hmm. um like that's that was their trajectory like they they were writers but they ultimately wanted to teach and the mfa was the sort of like next step to sure but which is something i there's there's this interesting split with with musicians and there's a um there's a poet that i'm whose uh, manuscript i'm working on for my press right now who is um doing like a music um it's like he's heavily focused on uh, music performance, like classical music performance, and he's going sure. to a, a, a conservatory, which is a whole other like aspect of it's you know like really intensive, just learning and practicing and playing music. Without it's like you're not you're not really going to wind up with a with a degree, but you will wind up after you know it's like you will have spent I don't know like two or three years really hyper focused on on the the performance aspect, and I I wonder I feel like for most MFAs there's this weird sort of like it either is 
I feel like maybe it should be separated out that like if you want to teach or if that's the direction that you want to go focus more on like you know you can get some of the writing you can get the the honing of the craft but it would be much more focused on like how you actually like teach writing and then for the other people who don't want to teach do it maybe more like a conservatory where it's just a really hyper focused you know it's like you're writing you're in workshop and the end result is is the, more the like the production or the polishing of work instead of all the other stuff but i don't know i don't know how that would get split out and i also don't know you know speaking back to like commoditization and monetizing stuff like what what university would be in a position that would allow them to open up a program like that in which case in which or through which they would probably not get like any money sure you know (sighs) i mean i think that's the whole problem with like you know making a business out of learning Mm -hmm. you know i mean and this is Mm -hmm. a huge topic obviously we don't even you know necessarily have to get into the nitty-gritty of it but it's like how do you also teach art you know i think that's always been kind of a difficult like you know modern postmodern so to speak problem you know because obviously like school and like the idea of public school was only you know a a turn of the century thing Mm -hmm. or even like you know the late the 1800s basically let's say because before that it was really only like rich people were learning from you know tutors Mm -hmm. or like private teachers and like the idea of public school happened because people weren't farming anymore and all of a sudden you got all these kids and what are you supposed to do with them? Right. You know, so it just became another way to open up the job market. But Mm -hmm. then like, obviously like post world war two, it became more of a thing to get a college degree because all of a sudden you had veterans and here's a way to incentivize them and give them some kind of reward is give them free education and Mm -hmm. pensions, you know, essentially, which is not a bad thing, but I think like, after the baby boomer generation, like you didn't need, like it was a strange, like dichotomy where it just like became different. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like we, all of a sudden we like weren't working in factory jobs anymore. So then like, but now there are all of these colleges open and we have to make people go to them. Mm-hmm. So it's it became this interesting, vicious cycle that I don't think it's like the man did it to us. But I think we did it to ourselves because we have to keep jobs open so people right. work. I mean, I think that's kind of what happened now where it's like most office jobs don't really need to be full time office jobs. But we like create work for ourselves mm-hmm. because, you know, we can't move into the whole like universal um income idea yet apparently (laughs) yeah god i i in my um in my pedagogy class and in when i was working through my mfa um for our final project we had a huge range of things that we could do um and i decided to do a uh not i don't know like not super in-depth maybe like half super in-depth uh, annotated bibliography on like looking at the the differences between uh, U.S. education, like the U.S. the United States education system and the Finnish education system, mm. um, and the sort of wild divergences that happened, um, or like the the two very very different paths that the two countries took, um, and it was there was one article that I found that was really really interesting. It was um, a 
like linguistic or like a lexiconal analysis of um, speeches given by uh, the Secretary of Education, I think uh, President Bush, and maybe one or two other people during Bush's, uh, the second Bush's presidential uh, reign. And it was noting like how often education was paired with jobs. Or like the, sure. you know, like the idea of, oh, you're you're going to school so that you can, you will wind up with a better job. And then towards the end of the article, it even kind of um, dipped in a little bit to like Obama's push to get community college um, like free or like two years mm-hmm. of community college free. And then even within his speech involving that, and I think his, his secretary of education also, that the idea of it was that like you would get education or you would get this opportunity to get educated or go to go to a college in order to ensure that you will get a better paying job at some point in the future. Um, which was a really interesting sort of like neoliberal or like mm-hmm. the, like the most, uh, the most overt, uh, I don't know, like staining of neoliberalism in like the education system. Um, Whereas, like, the Finns took a very, very different, um, you know, like, they, they, um, they centralized it at first to make sure that everyone was on the same page. They elevated teaching to the, a, like, respectability and compatibility, um, comparable to lawyers and doctors. Um, they made it, like, a mandatory any teacher had to go to a like a graduate school where they made that free so they taught all the teachers you know the essentially the exact same curriculum um it was equally weighted between like teaching and research so they all Mm -hmm. the teachers were on the, the forefront of like you know cutting edge education theory and practices um and then they sent them out into the community and essentially trusted the teachers to teach however they needed to teach mm-hmm. um and with a so with a major focus of like student um and student-led and like autonomous learning so you give the students very much control of their education and you you act as more or less kind of guides to kind of move them along um and then over time they and this is the most amazing thing to me they gradually decentralized um like the education um not like because there was like a secretary of education and the sort of like education department in in the government and then slowly over time that was more or less dissolved um and now there's like i think like a 10 page essential core curriculum um like you know everything is boiled down to essentially that but you know and so and that that just the um the fact that more or less lateral thinking and self-directed education and um, trust with teachers and actually giving them uh, a li- like more than a living wage and taking care sure. of them. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if Finland is still up at, up at the top of the, the like education scores like they were a couple of years around the time that I was doing this research, but that was like, most of the articles that I found kind of pointed to those things. It's like, this is the reason that Finland is doing so great. Granted, it is a relatively small country with a more or less homogenized uh, learning population. Um, 
And I imagine that with like the the migrant crisis and and uh, immigrants moving through a lot of European countries, that may have changed. But it seems that Finland, even when I was reading some of the articles, Finland was was trying to, um, like, trying to do what they could to help immigrants into the country, mm-hmm. like, be on par and kind of be at at the level that the rest of the students who have, like, the rest of the Finnish students who have been who are Finnish and have been in schools throughout their life, you know, to try to equalize the playing field. Um, but it was, it was really, it was astounding to me that, that this is one of the few cases that I've, I've read about in which there has been a massive consolidation of power and then a gradual dissolution of that power. Cause sure. you know, most of the time when that happens, the people who gain that power, like don't, <laughs> typically don't want to get rid of it well no definitely not i mean that's how like fascism and mm-hmm. you know other terrible yeah you know political governments happen and you know all sorts of things not even political but like financial institutions oh, and yeah. monopolies yeah um i feel like most other countries i don't want to generalize but a lot of other countries <laughs> tend to have like a much better outlook on teachers and education than we do. I mean, the American education is so far behind Europe, generally speaking. It's kind of embarrassing. (laughs) And I say this, like, because I actually used to be um, a high school English teacher, and, like, I I still teach, like, workshops, but obviously the the poetry workshops I teach are, like, for adults, so it's a much different type of education. But, like, I used to teach high school, which... You know, teaching high school in America, especially in New York, is such a complicated, nuanced endeavor. And you really see a lot of the, you know, bullshit, basically. <laughs> I mean, there's a lack of better <laughs> words for it. But it's, like, all toxic, you know, classist, sexist, racist bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then we, we have a broken system. And I think, you know it's also one of the reasons why our art institutions and funding is so lacking. I mean, there are so many obviously good like grants and institutions and like residencies for Mm -hmm. writers and artists. So I'm not going to like take a major shit on it because (laughs) (laughs) I'm so articulate. I feel like anyone listening to this is going to be like, I thought Joanna was like way smarter and like, (laughs) had better language skills um yeah i don't want to like make it seem like we have nothing or that there aren't people doing hard amazing work but i think like overall like governmentally especially now that trump is oh here, yeah you know what i mean like it's yeah. art is clearly not a priority and I, I do think you know that's a problem but it also might force people to be creative yeah. and make some really you know badass art because i do think obviously like really amazing movements come out of terrible times oh yeah definitely and i i think like i i keep thinking that like the the best outcome of trump's presidency is people paying more attention and being more plugged in and being more willing to like stand up and fight for the shit that they you know, sure. believe in, um, you know, cause you saw that with like the woman's March. Um, and I, I feel like with, with the public arts funding, I know that he, he had machinations to 
to do away with like the NEA or like severely cut funding to, yeah. to them. Yeah. Um, you know, hopefully like ideally that would not happen. Ideally, you sure. know, like the best case scenario, you know, a president would send more funding to that. Um, but in, in the face of a president who is like, yeah, no arts, fuck it. Um, like, I feel like the, the next best case scenario is for a number for, you know, just huge chunks of the population to be like, no, this is, no, this is not okay. Of course. Yeah. Um, and to really like, to be, to, to, I guess maybe reawaken or to, to re, to re-realize it's like, oh, this is actually a really vitally important thing that we have been doing for a long time that I didn't realize it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is good. This is important. This is a necessary thing, but um hopefully using that as a segue let's talk about poetry yeah (laughs) (laughs) i know between the both of us i think we could like talk about all the things forever yes poetry is you know (laughs) it's important yes um okay so you i'm um so as as listeners who have been been hanging out in the last you know who've been holding on to so poetry for the last couple of seasons know mm-hmm. that I send out um, like just some questions before the recording to my guests, just as things to think about. Um, sure. And one of them, I have it up. Um, oh, okay. So this has not been a, a question I've asked everyone, um, mostly because the people that I've talked to haven't like, it's it like they write in they may write other things than poetry, but writing is, is sort of their, their major art medium. But since you said that you are, um, mm. you are active, you're an active visual artist. Um, what, like, how has that influenced your poet? I mean, you, I know that you said earlier that, sure. um, like you, it, it, your poetry is potentially more, uh, heavily laden with surrealistic images. Um, but like, could you expand upon what you feel is the relationship between your visual art and your, your poetry? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that's a great question. And I think any person who does more than one type of artistic endeavor knows exactly how like everything bleeds together, which is also why I think every person should dabble in all (laughs) sorts of different kinds of art. But, Mm -hmm. um, so for me, like I was always, I pretty much like painted and, drew and like did all sorts of weird art ever since I could remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like, I, I just always was obsessed with like portraying some kind of like mundane, ordinary moment, particularly like with people, like I've always been obsessed with people, like people watching and just like really like analyzing mm relationship interactions and like even just the silences between like what someone might say or like how they hold themselves and I think like when I was a kid I just like was always like drawing like people Mm -hmm. um not that I didn't do anything else but I was really obsessed with it but then I would do some weird ass things and I would just like make it kind of bizarre and give them like weird outfits or just kind of like weird like morphing limbs or something like I was just a very strange child um and I I studied art and when I was in school and I think then I started writing when I was like around 11 
which oh, is still wow. pretty young. I mean, yeah. I, was, I was like very young, but I think because of that, because I was so young and I was doing all of these different things, I think the two became intertwined for me in a weird way where what I couldn't quite express with my visual art, I would put into my poetry. Okay. And I think like one became like, I was basically doing the same thing, but a different art form. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of how I look at art in general is like, we're kind of all obsessed with the same thing. And there's just like different mediums and modes in which you can kind of like express a different facet or dimension of that. So I think for me, like visual art tends to be more metaphorical, especially at this point in my life. Like I usually do sort of like abstract pieces. Okay. Um, although it changes. Whereas <laughs> I think with my poetry, I tend to take the abstractions, but then put a narrative to them. So I think like okay. the, for me, that's kind of how the relationship has intertwined itself. Whereas I think the, my visual art is kind of like what your first thoughts are before you translate them. Mm. And then I think with my writing, it's the translation of those thoughts and those emotions that we have that are, I think probably the most important and the deepest and the, you know, more organic. And I think we try to create words for things that we don't really have words for. Mm -hmm. And I think I try to do that with poetry, but in a way that the images do it for me, as opposed to trying to translate something that's impossible to translate. Because I do think we do a disservice to ourselves when we like try to be like, oh, this is exactly how I feel because it's not, we can never do that. You know what I mean? And I think like our brains and our like bodies carry so much more complexities to them. And I think that's also why like I started really also trying to experiment a little bit with music, but I really, I don't consider myself oh. a musician. I just kind of experiment <laughs> with things because I think the more art you do, like the more you learn about expression and yourself. Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm li- listening to you describe your relationship, the relationship between your visual art and your poetry. I'm, I'm getting uh, very internally excited because I, <laughs> I, I feel I think I pretty much mirrored way about my music in my writing. Mm-hmm. Um, although my, so when you, do you feel like you're um, like, it, let's say you have this, this, I don't know, like this emotion or this experience or whatever, would that be a sort of, um, oh, how can I, how can I, ask this um okay so if you let's say you had an i don't know like some some emotional experience would it if if you felt like you could get visual art out of that do you would you also feel like you could write it too or are those like if you feel like this one experience is lending itself to poetry then it would probably not lend itself to like are are they are they mutually exclusive or do you could you get like both out of the same thing and you're just expressing mm-hmm. I, if that makes sense I, I no it totally makes okay. sense actually and I think they're not mutually exclusive I think you can have the same emotion or moment um, be expressed through all the different art forms that you're doing because mm-hmm. I think they bring different things out and I think the best example 
um, that I can think of or the two best examples are like, you know, the quintessential book to movie or movie to book mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people are like, oh, it's like the film, for example, is never as good as the book. And I think that's not true. I think if anything, they just express different things. Yes. You know, and mm-hmm. I, I, for me, cause I love film a lot. So I don't, I don't think like one is necessarily trumps or is better than the other. I just think like, say when you read, when I read a poem or a story or whatever I'm writing, mm-hmm. um, I feel like I'm per- purposely crafting a narrative in order to highlight whatever mm-hmm. I'm commenting on. So for example, like in Mary's of the sea, I was writing about abortion and sexual assault. So I was writing it through narrative. So instead of me saying, this is exactly what I feel about abortion or sexual assault, like I'm writing it in a way where you're the reader is figuring out the comments that I'm making and right. like what it means for women and women's bodies and gender. Mm-hmm. Whereas then if I painted that, because I've also, you know, made visual art, you know, I made an art piece recently where I deconstructed the book and I like used um, like tampons and like <laughs> maxi pads and all sorts of other things and like, you know, it was a really abstract art piece. And I think like they both were clearly about like mm-hmm. the same themes, but in two different ways. Right, where, yeah, like, I, you know, I wasn't really creating a narrative with the art piece, but I was commenting on like, what does it mean that like, say for example, like women's bodies, like we have to use these like very like corporate manufactured products and mm. that, you know, it's, you know, all of these different things and what that kind of means. And I think even with music, for example, like you're setting a tone, literally, right, that you're supposed to react to. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, obviously, music is an entirely what I would say, different realm in the sense that, you know, not everyone reads poetry, and not everyone looks at visual art, but everyone listens to music. So I think in some way, it opens up the playing field even more mm-hmm. because also I think with music and memory, things are jarred more than say like art or words. Yeah. Um, so it really depends. And I, I think that's why it's actually good for me at least to do all of these different <laughs> kinds of mediums, because I think it makes me think about things differently. Cause I don't think like you make one, you write one poem about like abortion and therefore you've said all you can say about it. Oh, I think right. it's about yeah. like, you know, exploring the different facets and like making yourself challenged mm-hmm. because we also like, thankfully I've grown <laughs> like in my beliefs, you know what I mean? Because I've made myself make art about right. it and like been like, well, why do I think this? And like, why am I identifying a certain way when it actually doesn't mean anything? Right. Um, I know that was like a really long winded. No, no, that's approach. <laughs> no, but I think that like, in in so i i definitely agree that i mean i think with with any piece of art you know it's like if you like you said before it's like we're all they're all sort of i mean i think in general people have their own maybe not collectively we're not all obsessed about the same thing but i feel like you know it's like as as an artist there are things that you're like you always kind of keep coming back to and exploring um and like i've um i have a kind of 
fractious relationship with my brother. Um, mm. And in my first collection, I wrote a couple of poems that, you know, about that. Um, and I went to a residency last year, actually about a, about a year ago. Um, and unexpectedly, like he showed up in some more poems and I was like, oh, okay. I thought, you know, I was done with this. Yeah, I thought naively, I was like, oh, I thought I was done with this. Um, yes. But I also have um, like, there's an album that I'm, I've been working on for a while and it's only been in the last I don't know, handful of months that it's really sort of crystallizes like, oh, the reason that I haven't really been able to do anything with this EP yet is because like I didn't like it. I One, I didn't realize that it was going to be essentially about my brother. <laughs> and two, I wasn't at a point where like that stuff had come up again. Sure. And I was like, oh, OK, well, now like I'm not I'm not in the stage like ready to go to, to to start churning it out but like i'm i'm getting close and at least i know it's like oh okay i i, I now know the the sort of direction and the sort of um like the room in myself that i will need to go hang out in in order to get this stuff like out um sure and course. i i think that yeah so like any any piece that you write about a particular topic is you know like i i would feel like it would be a very um I don't know, like very, very dripping in hubris to be like, this is everything that I have to say about this Oh, one. no, of course not. And um, I think also, um, I don't know if you've read House of Leaves, but I've attempted. I only, yeah, no, I mentioned that only because like, you know, Mark C. Danielewski wrote it, but then his sister is a musician who like her stage name is Poe and she made this album called Haunted, which was this like, mm-hmm companion piece to it and i think like you know a lot of people know the book but they don't necessarily know the album and i think like the album again like kind of does something that the book can't do and yeah. vice versa basically. oh yeah what well, back to um hopping a little bit back to like the like move or book into movie movie into book um in my last year of undergrad i actually took a um it was specifically sci-fi adaptation but it was an adaptation hmm. class um, and we like the for the entire semester the kind of driving question uh, is what makes a good movie adaptation of a book. Um, sure. And the the teacher kind of pulled us to the beginning of class, and I would say close to ninety percent of the class, when asked what makes a good adaptation, um, they responded with um, like faithfulness to plot. Mm. Yeah. And then as the class developed, and we you know we read. Uh, the Android, Android Dream of Electric Sheep and watched Blade mm-hmm. Runner. We read War of the Worlds and watched uh-huh. the Spielberg War of the Worlds. We read, um, I think, Chunks of the Time Machine and watched a couple of, you know, a couple of adaptations of that. Um, we eventually arrived at the, an- like, the answer that we kind of developed as a class was the thing that makes a successful ad- movie adaptation is, um, like, adherence to themes and tone more so than plot so which for us would be like we recognized blade runner as a pretty damn good adaptation of duane george dream of electric sheep because it like it created a world that felt um similar or like pretty pretty close to what dick was was going for in his book and it dropped a lot of like the subplots and a lot of like weird sort of more intricate stuff that you can't you can't really do in like two hours. 
Um, mm-hmm. But it's still like it hit upon the sort of like the the core idea of like what makes someone human or what like what what makes someone more quote unquote real than something else is like that's that's everywhere in um, in Blade Runner. But we also saw that the Steven Spielberg adaptation of War of the Worlds was not a very good adaptation because it completely shifted the focus of what like the story was about. Um, and I recently re- rewatched uh, Jurassic Park with some friends, and I noticed the same thing in that too. That in Crichton's book, it's more about like the like the in the lack of control that you have over like the natural world. That there's always going to be something that happens that is beyond your control. And in the movie, there is that aspect, but it's much more about like the familiar relationships between these characters, which is a like that's like Spielberg's films. That's all all of them. That's what it is. Sure, of course. At the core, it's just, you know, like, there are these dinosaurs running around, but the main focus is, like, how does that affect the relationship between Dr. Grant and Ellie Sattler and the kids that are, you know, being electrocuted and chased around. Um, But anyway, so I I think that that idea is, like, each, each artistic medium has its sort of rules or has its limitations or has the things that it's, it's really, really good at doing. And it's just a matter of like, how do you essentially translate one story or one experience or one emotion out of one medium into another medium? And there will always be things, you know, it's like because it's translation, there's always going to be something that is lost or always something that is not going to be, you know, exactly accurate. But there's still, you know, like there's something magical about reading haiku in Japanese, even though I don't read Japanese. Um but and it's like I recognize that I'm not getting everything that the haiku is doing with like it's it's um, like it's word choice and how it's broken and you know like the rhythms. But there is something I think equally beautiful in when it's translated into English that you know at at the core the the sense or the the emotional heart of the poem is still intact. It's just sort of you know like you're getting a little bit different flavor or accent of, of it course, than you would yeah. otherwise. Hmm. So when you when you started writing when you were eleven, what did you start <laughs> writing poetry or did you develop into that like later? I did both. I did poetry and fiction. Wow. Um, do you I do know. you still I have was... <laughs> poems that you wrote when you were eleven? Sadly, sadly, I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so not on me, um, but my I have all of my childhood notebooks at my parents' house. Oh, that I've is incredible. It's so bad and so embarrassing. <laughs> my first poem was, <laughs> I'm not kidding, my first poem was about the moon. Because, of course, I was, like, witchy then and, like, obsessed with ghosts and moons. And it's so awful. And, like, I, I don't think I actually have the stories that I wrote. I think I did throw those out in, Aww. like, horror when I was in high school. And I was like, what the fuck is this bullshit? <laughs> um <laughs> Because I wrote, like, I think I, I was really ambitious, and I wrote, like, this 75-page story Holy in shit. middle school. I know, and I threw it out because I was a dumbass. I'm like, I, I really do regret that. Not that it would have been good, but it would have been nice just to yeah. have that. Yeah, um, it's like a touchstone. Wow. Of course. But I was, you know, I was embarrassed and, like, 15 years old. I'm like, oh, my God, this is terrifying. <laughs> so, when... So, yeah. Um... So obviously, there's been some development of your writing since, especially your poetry, since you were you were eleven. Um, are there? Yes. 
do you so i like for me personally there are like three kind of major shifts in my writing that i can like i can not necessarily year but i can like pinpoint that's like oh yeah my writing changed in like inherently and irrevocably after this moment have you experienced that has it been more i guess more a slow gradual progression into what you're writing now or have there been some like major things that have you know like thrown massive curves or major obstacles that you've just had to like oh it's different now um, well, I think for me, um, yes and no. So, I, I mean, of course, I've, I've changed and evolved, thank God, because if I haven't <laughs> since I was, like, that age, it would be the worst. Um, <laughs> because, like, you know, at the time, I was, like, obsessed with, like, Tori Amos, which is, like, I still love Tori Amos, but, like, you know, right. I wanted to be her. Um, oh, okay. And I think for me, though, like, I tend to purposefully change my sort of, I don't want to say writing style, but at least the ways, the structure, the way in which I'm writing the poems for each collection. So like every single book I write or collection or whatever you want to call it project, Mm -hmm. um, has a different structure to some extent or has some kind of different concept. So I kind of compare my books to like concept albums because I become obsessed with these like sort of like challenges that that I give my cool. So I technically, on one hand, I guess I always change based on the project because I never want to repeat myself and I want to keep exploring different methods and techniques. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like you obviously, I can, I think can tell like my obsessions and like, I definitely have like a way that I use language that I'm sure I can't completely undo just because like we can't totally undo or deconstruct ourselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At least I don't think so. Um, I might be Mm. wrong, but so like, for example, like in my second book, it's like this book that I wrote based on tarot cards. So I do this like really weird structure where it's like not only just obviously based on tarot, but like, I use a lot of brackets and a lot of indentation and like the language is like super abstract, mm-hmm. even though there's like a narrative, like it's so obscured by the surrealism of it. It's probably one of the more surreal books I've written. Whereas like my first book is like this sort of coming of age narrative about three sisters. So it's probably like reads a super fictiony and prosy. And then like my third book is kind of like, lyrical narrative so I would say it's kind of a mix between the first and the second and it's also like very much about like gender and like you know abortion Mm -hmm. like it's much more of a commentary I think whereas the first book was more about like what does it mean to like be queer and I think the third book comments more about like gender and sex and then like sexting ghosts which is the one that just came out is kind of more of like a commentary on like spirituality and like sort of family dynamics and dysfunction and like that book is kind of written through these like interview and like texting conversations so I kind of used a more like quote-unquote what I would say is like a modern Mm -hmm. like approach to write it so it's like everything I do I'm like constantly trying to undo my former self wow I don't I don't know if I've ever talked to someone on this podcast that has made a conscious decision 
to to do that for each because I, I mean i feel like inevitably whatever it is that you're working on you know like if you're if you're collecting poems for uh like a collection or if you're very mindfully writing poems or writing something for a, a collected manuscript then you know, like you will you will inevitably and inherently kind of alter what it is that you're doing in order to fit where the the poems want to go or where the the book itself kind of is leading um but i feel like that's at least the the people that i've talked to and in my own experience that's much more of an unconscious sure like uh maneuvering that it's just you're sort of just following where it goes but that's really that's really wild that you consciously each time like it's your decision to do it differently or to to totally wow. yeah i'm like really into world building and like telling a story of some kind even if the story is not you know, linear, because I, I think for me, actually, a really good way for me to describe my style, and this was, like, I think a really unconscious thing until recently, um, it's very kind of David Lynchian, and that I'm very much about telling, like, this, like, interesting, like, mundane, surreal story, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But it's, like, in a nonlinear fashion, and I think a lot of times when people first read my poems, they might not really see that there's, like, always a story being told about, like, mundane life. Mm -hmm. But then I think once you really understand that it's just, like, this nonlinear approach to it and that I'm, like, obsessed with, like, sort of the, you know, ethereal, quote-unquote, supernatural, like, aspects or, like, what's going on behind the scenes Mm -hmm. I think that's like the best way for me to describe it and it's not something I ever sought to mimic I think I just was always obsessed with magical realism and like you know I watched Twin Peaks when I was in high school and all the the things so I think it just like subconsciously became part of my storytelling like technique Um, and just in general like I guess like I write based on like memory and moments and memory obviously is not linear and not always oh yeah yeah. Either. So I think like that's also why my writing tends to be like mimic that. And I think like kind of like David Lynch, like he clearly is like has a an aesthetic. Oh with yes. every single like movie he makes, like there's always a different obsession or trope that he's focusing on, even if it fits into his larger work. And I think that that's a model that I have always found fascinating. It's kind of like Jodorowsky too, whereas like Jodorowsky is like really obsessed with like telling these stories that we don't always notice. And it's really strange. And like, you can definitely see like the similarities between like, you know, the Holy mountain and like endless poetry. But at the same time, like everything he does is a little bit different. Mm hmm. Versus, like, if you look at a filmmaker like, you know, Wes Anderson, you know, I don't want to shit on Wes Anderson, <laughs> but, like, every Wes Anderson film is kind of the same. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, it's not really all that different, and I don't hate Wes Anderson. Like, I like the films for what they are, but I think I like to be surprised and challenged by whatever I'm doing. Yeah. And I think, like, writers who manage to do that, it's, like always been my goal to aspire to that because like you can have the Charles Dickens of the world who like are really good about what they do Mm -hmm. or you could have like the Richard Brodigan 
who are just really fucking weird. And I think, like, you can argue that, like, Richard Brodigan wrote some really bad shit, but he also wrote some really brilliant stuff that I think makes, you know, all of that worth it, because I think you can't really make amazing art unless you fail a little bit. Like, I'm sure not every single poem I've written or even published is, like, the best thing I've ever done, but, like, I'd rather someone read a bad poem by me and then also read, like, an amazing poem that, like, moves them a little bit. Right. Um, I also think, like, now that the internet exists and I've been writing for such a long time, like, of course you're going to see, like, this progression. Because when I first started publishing, I was in my early 20s. You know, it was a long time ago. Right. So, thankfully, I've gotten better since then. (laughs) Wow. Huh. That's, like, because I was just thinking about, like, poets... Like, you know, Mary Oliver, I think, is a good example of um, someone who might be on, like, the other end of the spectrum. Yes. Um, that, you know, it's like, when you pick up a Mary Oliver book, it's, like, it's it's her, it's her voice. Yes. Um, and it just, it's, to me, it's, it's more of a, you know, like, again, they're different because each time that she writes, it's a different experience. Each, like, you know, if she goes back and visits the same pond or the same woods or whatever, it's each time that she visits, it's going to be something different. But there is a, um, I feel like there's a very healthy consistency yes. of, of voice and of style. Um, kind of like throughout everything that she's, that she's written that to me, it almost feels like, um, Wow, this and this is the first time that I thought of this, but it feels like it's like just sections of one kind of long, sure. like lifelong poem or like lifelong book that she's writing, and it's just it's like you mentioned Dickens. It's sort of like serialized that every every couple of years there's this new installment of like you know like my life poems. Um, but wow, yeah, that's I um do you speaking of of film and of uh, directors that do interesting and different stuff. Do you know of the the filmmaker Sally Potter? I don't actually, which is exciting because like I know a lot about film and it's always like kind of awesome when someone knows something I don't. Okay, I I would highly recommend checking her out. So when I was when I was an undergrad, I I minored in in film studies. I don't know why. I just I did. Um, and in most of my film classes, like the auteur theory was kind of being thrown around and, um, and if anyone, if any director or filmmaker can be considered an auteur, I would say Sally Potter might be one of the few because she, like, she directs all of her films. She writes, I think she writes all of them. Um, she has edited a number of them. She has choreographed a number of them. So, like, she she has her hand in the majority of the process from pre-production to post-production. Um, and for, for listeners out there that don't know what the auteur theory is, it's, it's the idea that given the, like, the scope of a director's work, you can see, um, I don't know, sort of like a, a continuous or sort of like, uh, I don't know, maybe not continuous thread, but similarities and... Um, like tonal similarities or thematic similarities, um, like throughout the scope of their of their work, that there's they develop a sort of like common language throughout all of it, um, and there are lots of, of uh, proponents of no, 
Yes. No. What? There are people that that think that the auteur theory is a load of shit because there are so many people working on a film um, that it's difficult for there to be sort of like one quote unquote guiding vision. But if there's anyone who was in that position to be that, it would be the director because they they're sort of like the captain and they kind of they kind of oversee most of the stuff. But anyway, Sally Potter does like everything with her films. Um, she did an adaptation of oh crap, I have to find it. Um, it's with, <laughs> it's with uh, Tilda Swinton. Um, Ooh. I'm already in it. I'm like Orlando. Yes. She did an adaptation of <gasps> oh, Orlando. Oh, I saw Orlando. I didn't realize that was her. Orlando is beautiful. Yes, like, that film is amazing. It's like it's all the the good things about a film adaptation. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh my she, god. Okay. She so also did so the the two other ones of hers that I've that I've seen. Well, three other ones, I guess. Um, she did a film called The Tango Lesson, um, okay. in which she stars in. Um, so she wrote, directed, stars in, I think kind of choreographed it. Um, <laughs> it's about like her going to, uh, well, her character going to Argentina and like learning tango. Um, okay. There is another film called of hers called Yes, which is written hmm. in um, completely in iambic pentameter. Oh, shit. That's um, crazy. So you and it, it it was a really weird experience watching it at, like you you kind of hear it in the first I don't know maybe like 5 minutes like the the sort of establishing moments sure and then you just sort of you don't really hear it anymore it like it'll it'll pop up occasionally but it's 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 wild how it there are moments where it's like you just you're watching it and you forget that it is all in in iambic pentameter and usually like rhyming I am a contender. Mm. Um, and then she did another one uh, called Rage, which was filmed completely on um, iPhones. Oh wow, that's super cool. Um, so she's 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 a powerhouse filmmaker. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like I definitely need to check more of her stuff out, <laughs> especially because I did love Orlando and like just like I mean, Virginia Woolf is amazing, but I felt like the film really touched upon. Yeah a lot of like the gender sort of exploration yes which i I feel like you can't like if you're if you're gonna have a film that that delves into stuff like that tilda swinton's a very very good person to to, to cast in your lead role Hmm. okay so um i'm this is a i tend to i've seemed to be developing questions that i i tend to ask more often than other ones um Aside mm. from the two that I asked at the end of the podcast, but it's I'm very interested. I, I guess it really is just more the questions that I'm more interested in asking than other ones. Mm. But um, if you do, you okay? So there are a couple of ways I can phrase this, and I, I will see. I'll try to figure out the best way I can. Um, do if you if you could name like if you had your if you if all the poets that you've read and have been influenced mm-hmm. by you if you could set them up into like a pantheon or you're like your <laughs> your personal pantheon of of poets uh-huh who would be up at the top oh my god that's such a hard question but such a good one um i guess i would really have to go with um kim Hyun. it's this really amazing korean poet um I really love Richard Brodigan, actually. 
big influence on me, which probably is not hard to see. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I have so many. And Sexton. Um, oh, my God. Where do I, where do I go? <laughs> With this Audrey Lord, Lucille Clifton, um, Gwendolyn Brooks, big one. Um, God, there's so many. Milton, I, I love Paradise Lost, really? actually. I know, surprising um, choice, but also not because <laughs> there's like so much weird, dark, like, and there's a lot of duality, I guess is actually how I want to put it. And duality is something that really leads my work. And like, there was a lot of moral sort of quandaries because like it's all about satan and mm -hmm. satan's fall so like of course i'm just like hell yeah <laughs> talk to me about that be sympathetic um well, it's, and it's also really... just like the structure of it you know it's like written in blank verse mm -hmm. so it's also really interesting to just like think about the use of language yeah um, it's also with like with with paradise lost it's really interesting that so much of like the the sort of generalized and accepted view of satan and hell um that most christians have are is because of paradise lost and the inferno yes it's true which is astounding um, to me that they're it is. like that that they have been that like that the worlds that they've created have become so so much the part of like popular human well at least like western christian human culture that that's like that's what people think of when they think of hell or they think of satan is is are these essentially a, a, a weird sort of portmanteau of those two works yes that's wild to me um yeah i feel like i could just name poets forever though <laughs> it's just like kind of probably like then i'll just name everybody ever <laughs> um, but i mean there's like a bunch of poets now like that you know like i read all the time like amy king kava akbar natalie eilbert i mean these are all like amazing you know mm -hmm. contemporaries but yeah i could just go on forever and it's like so hard to choose so us uh, i think you hit a little bit on this but of the of the pantheons did like were there any ones that once you read you're like oh okay this is somebody that i i need or like have have there been major influences of your work based upon the stuff that you have that you've read that like you can you could pinpoint back to like oh the of reason course. the reason that i do this or that i write this particular way is because of this either collection that I read or this this person that I that I read oh definitely for sure I mean I think with Paradise Lost it's like definitely made me think about like how can my language be mimicking the heartbeat or not mimicking the heartbeat mm. or like how can I use music to influence my work because I think like I, I listen to a lot of jazz so I write a lot of my poems to jazz and nice. I think that thinking about it like thinking of the rhythm and how it will change the diction is interesting because it makes you choose interesting words it makes you really conscious of what it sounds like and also what it looks like mm -hmm. 
So I think with Milton, it was much more of a sonic learning experience. Okay. Um, which is important to me. I think like Richard Sykin, his first book, Crush, was really influential mm. to me. Like just the excessiveness of it, the conversational tone, um, the line breaks, like, and the narrative, the lyrical quality of it, I think definitely influenced how I tell stories and the nonlinear mm-hmm. aspect. I that's think actually, Sexton is just like super into the gender sex thing. So I think that's probably very obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crush is actually yeah. sitting on the top of my to read list right now. Yeah, it's an amazing book. And that was definitely a huge influence on my writing. Um, and I think even just like poets like Audre Lorde and Lucille Clifton being you know, these badass women <laughs> writing about their experiences and motherhood and race and all of these things like clearly, you know, influenced me as well because I'm obsessed with like how gender and like all of these different aspects of our lives are treated and especially like motherhood in particular is often not written about or like when it is written about, it's never taken as seriously. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I feel like everything I also, I try to like be a sponge in general and like <laughs> be influenced by everything around me. But I, those are definitely huge influences. I think like the Richard Brodigan influence is obvious. Like he's so absurd and surreal, but also really like funny in a dark way, mm-hmm. which I try to be in my poems. Like I try to have some kind of humor and like realize like, you know, even if I'm talking about something as serious as like what it means to be queer. You know, I want to make fun of myself, basically, right. I guess. Or make fun of, like, the dumb cultural institutions that we have. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Follow-up question. <laughs> Who is at the top of your jazz pantheon? Oh, man. That is hard. <laughs> um, that's even harder than asking me about poets. Okay, if there, if there were... Mean. If I'll there were three, <laughs> like the the top three albums that you listen to, the top oh, three jazz man. albums that you listen to more often than you listen to something else. Oh man, oh that's so hard. So <laughs> I hate you right now. I think, in, <laughs> I think in general, I mean, like I just love like Sun Ra is great, and like Miles Davis is great, and oh my god, I can't even choose like Andrew Hills like. Um, dedication is really great. Oh my god, I'm sorry. I'm like, there's too many now. I'm just thinking of all the people that okay. I'm like Who's, thinking who... of. But those are like my top. Okay, I, I'm gonna stop there. Those are good people. Hmm. Do you know? Um. So whenever I I didn't grow up with jazz, but I I took bass lessons when I was younger, and my instructor was like, is a jazz bassist. Um. So I was I was pushed into jazz sure early um do you know pat metheny i don't you so one of my absolute absolute favorite albums is the way up by pat metheny it is four songs long um and the songs range in length from around six minutes to almost a half hour oh wow that's intense um and there is a so I, I I've discovered that I'm much more uh, bent towards like uh, orchestral jazz like not sure. not big band but more like composed jazz. 
Yeah, no, I can um, understand that. So there's another album. Um, the first residency that I went to was out in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska. Um, and I spent most of my time there listening to the Thompson Fields by the Maria Schneider Orchestra. Mm. Um, and I also would feel remiss um, if not not telling you about two other ones. There is a... Um, mm-hmm. There's a, I believe he is French Lebanese uh, oh. jazz trumpeter named uh, Ibrahim Malouf. Okay. Um, who is phenomenal. And um, are you, do you know of, are, are you a, a fan of, or watcher of Bob's Burgers? <laughs> I have definitely, yes, watched. I think I, I think I finished it, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm a fan. I'm so, not like a huge, huge fan, but I'm a fan. Okay, so the, the voice actor of Bob is named uh, H. John Benjamin, and he okay. re- he released a jazz album titled, uh, Well, I Should Have, asterisk, Learn to Play the Piano. Oh, my um, God. He does funny. not play the piano, and he hired three, like, session jazz musicians to show up and play with him without telling him that he, without telling them that he's, does not play the piano oh my god and it is parts of it are difficult to listen to but just the the fact that you know like jazz at its core is improvisation um yes feels like it's just it's a it's a beautiful ridiculously absurd album um that i i don't know how often it would it would wind up in like your CD player or your record player, but I feel like it's worth mm-hmm. worth at least one listen, one listen to get through. Yeah, no, I'm definitely gonna like check that out because I'm always about checking out like different things, basically because I, I, you know, I write a lot to music, so it's important Do you, for me. I know that. Well, most of the jazz, at least that I listen to, is is without vocals. But when you when you write to music, is it do you do you focus or do you seek out stuff that is instrumental, or can you write to stuff that has vocals and lyrics? I usually um, do without lyrics because I think it, it's a little distracting, which I think most writers tend to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just because I, I want the mood and the tone to kind of carry my work as Mm -hmm. opposed to like then thinking of the lines while I'm trying to think of my own. Right. Um, and I think in general, I just tend to like, like instrumental, I guess, as opposed to Mm -hmm. lyrical. But I mean, I listen to all sorts of things based on my mood and what I'm doing, you know, because obviously the, what I'm writing to is going to be different than like what I'm walking to or right at a party. Mm -hmm. Ooh man. I so I've been I've been debating about whether or not to do another to start another podcast specifically about what people are listening to. Um cuz I I I love talking about music. Um but I can I I'm not going to I will resist the urge for that now and just say that if you are if you're seeking out more instrumental music, um that is almost exclusively what I listen to now. Mm-hmm. Um so at some point later, I can give you a, a list if you're, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's course, lots of, do. it's lots of, uh, Japanese instrumental bands. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, definitely give me some recommendations. Um, but anyway, um, since we're talking a little bit about like the, I don't know how you, how you choose to write your poems, um, is mm-hmm. there, 
is there a preferred or ideal way that you would want your poetry to be um, experienced? Huh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, on one hand, just am always thrilled that anybody reads anything I write that I don't <laughs> really care. But on the other hand, I guess I, I just want someone to experience them like with their body. Ooh. Like I want it to be a sensory experience, whatever that means. Wow. Like, like you're feeling it, you're smelling it, you're tasting it. Uh -huh. um, I, I, I'm all about the sensory experience. And because like we have bodies and we live in them as much as I would love to be an ethereal being <laughs> without one, you know, we do have them and yes. you might as well use them. <laughs> so in the, in the most literal sense of the word, you, you want your poems to be like a sensual experience. Exactly. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. I, I don't, I think, I think I would be on the more like ethereal emotional side of that. Um, wow. That's, huh. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing in, in that sense that like how, how the, your poems sound when they're read aloud, not necessarily like performed aloud, but just mm -hmm. how they, how they exist orally in the world is, is a important factor in, in your writing. Yes. Yes, for sure. Um, how I break the lines, mm -hmm. I it's exactly how I would read them. And it's a visual thing. So for me, like the line breaks are really intrinsic to the poem because I want the reader, when they look at the poem, to see the negative space on the page like it's a canvas. And I want them to see, you know, the double meanings in the lines and really think about like, the stresses, but at the same time, when they read it, that's exactly how they're supposed to be. It's like a map, basically. Okay. So I'm giving you everything. Like, there's really, in some kind of funny way, there's. I'm an open book. Like, there's really no <laughs> mystery to me. And I think a lot of people, like, when they read my work, they think it is really, like, strange or obscure or, like, not necessarily, like, the easiest thing to get, but I actually feel like it is in a weird way. Like, I just kind of give you everything. Huh. So, so your, your unit of, um, I don't know, I, maybe not your smallest unit, but, like, the typical unit that you use to measure your poems is, like, ha like how you would read it or, like, where you would pause. I guess, like, more or less you would break the line or do whatever you need to do based upon how you physically would read it. Exactly. Huh. So it's like I want it to be visual and like have like create double meanings within the poem. But mm -hmm. I also want it to be something where like you're going to read it in the same way that I'm going to read it. And of course, like the way that our voices are and like how I pause and like breathe is going to be different than someone else. But, you know, so like I might read something within the line a little bit different or stress something right. differently. But yeah. at the very least, like I, I want someone to understand, like if I broke a line at like a word, like say B or mm -hmm. two or and or whatever, they would read that and pause for at least a little bit. Right before they went on to the next yeah. line. And I, I think it's important because I think like music does make us feel something, even if it's unexpressed. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So when you, do you give um, like commas or other forms of punctuation or a, like a line break or a stanza break 
a certain does do, the, do each of those have a like a set value of breath or pause to you? Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Everything I do is so didactic, like it's all <laughs> purposeful, which I know sounds like it's so crazy probably because there's so much that goes into it, but like if I have a stanza break, like I'm doing that on purpose because I want to slow down right. the poem and yeah. I want to create more silence and like if I have a comma or I don't have a comma, I'm trying to create some kind of rhythm. So a lot of times lately, for example, I write a lot without using commas Mm -hmm. or anything but periods. And usually I only write, like lately I've been writing these poems that are only really one long sentence. And I'm doing that because I want the reader to feel this interesting sense of like, stream of consciousness and memory and like anxiety mm-hmm. all wrapped in one. But then I use the stanzas and the line breaks to kind of slow it down. Right. So it's yeah. kind of like a slow motion poem. Wow. That's actually, so the, um, the poet that I referenced, uh, earlier in the recording, um, that I'm, I'm currently editing his manuscript so I can publish it. Um, mm-hmm. had, like one one of the the first sort of like general notes that I gave him about his his manuscript was to remove all of the commas from it. Uh huh. That's um, funny because his work is is really sort of like sound and image mosaics. Like most of the poems are are sort of assembled that way, and um, I felt like the commas were detracting from the moments like the the sort of unexpected and surprise moments of when a line can be read in you know like three different ways or there's a word that shows up that could go to the line preceding it or the line after it and it was like leaning more on um the the reader to kind of figure or to allow i guess initially to allow the poems to or the lines to exist in the sort of like quantum like you like the duality Mm. state that it could be either and with the commas in there it felt like it it pinned them down to one particular reading and the poems felt like they were resisting that and like just leave it you know instead of instead of telling the reader that this is the way that it needs to be read leave it up to the reader to to kind of allow that to shift and move around in their reading of it sure to to be able to like hold both of or you know the multiple sort of possibilities that this all could be kind of like at once mm-hmm. um but that's wow that's really huh so i i tend to i think there there may be one poem that i've written that has you that has utilized like capital letters and period as a punctuation Mm-hmm. it's usually just commas um sure and like no no capitals nothing um but i've i've noticed in my in my writing that i tend to um i use like line breaks or stanza breaks as the sort of like the beginning of new thought like that's that's the sort of like in punctuation for me um, sure that I like, I will do. I will do enjambment, but it's usually enjambment within a stanza. I very, very rarely um, enjam across like stanza breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, which maybe I should start playing around with that. Yeah, yeah. Challenge yourself. Do something that you're not used to doing. Because I mean, that's what I try to do pretty much, and then I do it until I don't do it anymore. <laughs> well, speaking of that, um, 
This is a question that I don't know if I've asked anyone before just because I, I forget that I put it on my list. But um, where do you feel like you are currently youngest in your writing? Ah, that's a good question. Probably with the formal aspects of things. Like I don't really oh. like write sestinas or sonnets or mm -hmm. any of these like formal constraints. Mm -hmm. um, and I should like actually do that and challenge myself just because I think it, you know, it would obviously make me a stronger writer and I've written them and, right. I, you know, cause I've studied writing formally, but I don't, I haven't like felt comfortable with it. Like I'm not confident with hmm. that. So I think that would be interesting for me to do at some point soon. So I can, you know, make myself uncomfortable. <laughs> Um, are there any, so th this is something, I guess, sort of a back, back way in, in, into me talking about this, but are there any, um, I don't know, like topics that you feel like you should be writing about that you are not currently writing about? Mm, that's hard because I feel like everything, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, all of the things it's, that's a difficult one because I'm not I, I can't necessarily say yes or no because mm -hmm. I think of course there's ev like so many things I'm not writing about um, and I guess maybe like should is not the correct verb or the, <laughs> the correct condition sure. but just like things I mean maybe like it using the sort of youngness aspect that like there are topics that you that you have not yet written about that you feel like is that are um, like waiting in the wings or things that you've, that you've hit on a couple of times that feel like, you know, it's like there, that's, it's the beginning of a new sort of cycle of, of obsession. I'm not sure how to answer that, to be honest, because I feel like right now I'm still so obsessed with a lot of things, <laughs> but maybe, maybe like more, because I think I, in general, I've been very obsessed with like gender and body and like spirituality and stuff. And like all the, stuff that comes along with it. Mm -hmm. um, but I would be kind of curious maybe to do more like magic or like even Ooh. kind of like what is, what about machines? You know what I mean? Ooh. And not just like technology, but like just really thinking about like objects. Yeah. If that makes sense. So that would be an interesting thing for me to approach. It would be it would be really really cool to see, um, poems written with the same sort of like focus on the body and like the central like literal sensualness of the body, but positioned into machinery. Yeah, exactly. Like AI poems. Like, what would that even yeah. look like? You know, or like or like a like a car poem that's an exploration of like the body of a car. That wow, that would be. I don't even know what the hell that would look like. I don't either, but it would probably be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Because the, the reason that I that I, I I don't know that I was thinking about that because I, I as we were talking, it sort of pinged for me, um, like the the reflection or the echo of like where do I feel youngest in my writing. It was like okay, well, there's topics for me that sure. that's that's it. Um, and I I talked about this in the a little bit in the last uh, episode that I did about a mm -hmm. month ago. Um, but 
I have never really explored, and I'm I'm very very slowly getting getting into this, but I've never really explored, um, like, what it means for me to be a gender. Um, yes. Which is a sort of like, I've done a lot of like personal, um, um, I don't know, like discovery and thinking um, about it, but never really put that into poetry, and it's it's been. Sure sort of a like a slow process of figuring out like how to write poetically about this stuff Mm -hmm. um uh but yeah i um and also kind of like paired with that um like sexual like how to be what does it mean to be a gender in a male-bodied Sure. Like in a male body, but also like, how does it, like, what does that mean for my sexuality when like I inherently don't feel like I match like internally and externally mm-hmm. and there's, you know, like sexuality is this thing that kind of flows between both and like kind of internally, I, I, I can kind of navigate that, but I don't know what the, like the external, um, manifestations of it is, um, and I feel like it's this is something that I feel needs to be written about rather than music about because sure. there's like yeah because um, you can actually articulate it right in yeah a more there's, specific way yeah and like and I feel like because I I do prim- primarily instrumental music but it's very uh, the songs that I write are very much pinned to emotions um, or like feelings or like more internal sort of unvoiced experiences. Um, and I, there are like definitely things that I could write music about in regards to this, but it feels like it's a, it's needs to be explored in a, in a linguistic way in order. Cause it's, it's, it feels much more, um, I don't know, like I'm trying to reason through it or I'm trying to think through it and not just like feel through it. Well, yeah. Cause you don't really understand how you feel until you really write about it. I right. don't think anyway, like I think for anyone, not just writers, like we often aren't aware, you know, we're just kind of coasting through our day to day lives because, you know, work and relationships. And I think it can be hard to really know how you feel until you take the time to feel it, especially with gender, because I think oftentimes we just rely on, stereotypes and structures because that's just easy oh yeah whereas like i think like you know gender doesn't really exist i mean it Mm -hmm. does and it doesn't you know what i mean like obviously there are like we have bodies and there are different bodies that do different things technically Mm -hmm. um but i think like the social construct of of gender is really all that it actually is like you oh know, yes, it is masculine or feminine trait. Like that, there is no masculine or yes. feminine. But I, it's a hard thing to discover and think about and like identify. Yeah, yeah, and but yeah, and in the fact that like the the labeling is really just like you said, it's or sort of like you said, it's like it's a shorthand. It's sort of it like the labels or the the words that we use to describe these things come with a sort of pre existing. Um, I don't know, like lexicon or pre-existing sort of baggage of, of what that means. Um, and it can be beneficial. Like for me, when I was, when I was first discovering, um, you know, like a genderness, like I, sure. I felt this stuff all throughout my life, but I never had a vocabulary for it. And then, you know, like four, well, like five or six years ago, I found 
the vocabulary for it. And, but since then, it's it has developed and it has changed. And it's like, well, it's not it's not exactly this, or it feels like it might be bigger than this. But this was a good sort of like starting point for me to at least get me like access to language that allows me to to describe and like contemplate and express the things that I'm feeling that up until that point I really couldn't or I was describing sure. them in ways that was you know like more roundabout or more vague or more abstract like I, I could put it into to more or less contract or concrete terms um, but um, okay so um, I will ask you the traditionally last two questions um, that I ask in my podcast um, nice <laughs> the, fir the first one is, if you have the vocab, since we're talking about vocabulary, if you have the mm -hmm. vocabulary to describe it, uh, what is your internal landscape like? Oh, man, that is a good question. I would say I am an ocean in the middle of a forest. Ooh. So, so not, not a lake, but specifically an ocean. An ocean, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So is it, is it a, like, is it a, would it, I miss, I feel like I'm getting the sense that it's like this weird sort of dream logic that you have an yes. ocean that's as big as like the Pacific ocean, but it is in the middle of a forest that is not yeah. like as big as the ocean, but. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> okay. Time and space and dimensions don't uh, have the same properties. <laughs> okay, I can that actually you know that that reminds me of um, Neil Gaiman's uh, Ocean at the End of the Lane. Oh, I've never read that. Ooh, it's of of his stuff. It's I think one of my one of my favorite uh, no, short novels of his. Um, but it 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 works in that weird sort of like like within the realm of magic, kind of like what you're talking mm. about or maybe alluding to earlier that that, that yes. sense of like there is the there are these things that can exist as they are um that aren't that don't cancel each other out or i guess like dream logic essentially that there are things that can happen in dreams that it's you know like i'm i'm at school but i'm also in a grocery store and they don't like they're not mutually exclusive and just because one happens after the other one it doesn't negate the one that came before it's just like yes yeah of course you're at school but you're at the grocery store right now um like they both exist at the same time and the same the same possibility um wow but that's huh so what like is is there anything is the ocean like calm is there like weather stuff happening on there or is it just it's totally calm okay um so it's just no a, it's rain. just a big ass flat ocean yeah it's like this flat ocean in the middle of this like really luscious forest with a lot of sunlight but there's Ooh. also like stars in the sky too that you can see so it's like this really bizarre like neither night nor day sort okay. of realm. so is it is it is it like night over the ocean and then daylight in the woods or the, in the forest or is it both over both, both. at the same time <laughs> all of it okay wow that's really <laughs> you're like oh my god you're so weird no but like <laughs> you're so weird <laughs> the, so, no it's it's the fact that you like immediately and i know that i i mentioned <laughs> before that i would ask you specifically about this but it's like you had that image it's like, true <laughs> right right there um 
No, but it's because it it feels really similar to in in a sense it feels similar to the to my landscape. Which past listeners, I apologize. This is probably like the fortieth <laughs> time that you've heard me say this, but um, for me, it's a like South Dakota Badlands Prairie. Oh um, my god, that's great! So it's just like nothing. It's like landscape with some scrub and just nothing. Um, but there is occasionally like a fire pit with a log next to it. Um, and there is occasionally a like very small, like spartanly furnished room, um, like, like a building, or I guess a a house that is essentially a single, it's like a studio apartment essentially that exists out there. Um, that has like a bed, a desk, a window, a lamp. Um, and there is a door leading into so there's a door that leads outside and then there's like a closet door that leads into um like the the rest of the massive expansive like house of me um but those two things only exist occasionally in that landscape mm-hmm. um, Ooh, so i i will ask one more question and then we can move on to okay. the, the last one um when you when you think about this landscape do you are you like are you the landscape do you exist in the landscape um mm-hmm. or ah yes i have an answer to that okay i exist in the ocean in a glass seashell okay <laughs> i love how you're just like oh my god what is happening no but that like is it a, is it a glass seashell that is as big as you are like in normal circumstances, or are you shrunk to the size to fit in a glass seashell? It's 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 a big seashell. It's okay. like as if it's like my apartment. <laughs> okay. All right. Do uh, do you do you ever exist in the forest? Like, do you ever leave the ocean, or do you always feel like you are it like it's some place in the center, it more or less of this ocean in this seashell? I can do whatever I want because I'm a ghost. Okay. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Yes. Because, I mean, but, like, the reason I ask is because, like, there are times that I, like, I am I am a, I am a, um, a figure on the landscape. Um, I am sometimes watching myself are on the landscape, and other times I am the landscape itself. Um, I have never, there's never been a moment that I've been more than one of those at the same time. It's always, it's always one of those three. Um, sure, I can understand that. Huh. So I'm assuming that since you're a ghost in your landscape, you can just, like, phase in and out of the seashell, right? I can do whatever I want. Okay. <laughs> wow. Huh. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to sit with that for a little bit. Yeah, no, you can totally think about it and, like, ask me questions whenever you want later well, about just, it. Well, I'm just thinking about, like, like, I'm, I'm going to, to start slowly collecting your work and i'm i'm curious to see if like if that landscape if i if i could sense or pick up aspects of that landscape in in your writing probably i'm okay. guessing yeah because i think like in general i'm i'm very fluid and um don't like i just i i don't know how to exactly explain my like identity in that sense but like i've always looked at myself as like a very like sort of fluid person um, and just like interested in everything. And I just like always want to immerse myself in as much things as possible and just like get lost in it. Hmm. I don't know. That's kind of how I've always been. 
no, that, that, yeah, that, that feels like that tracks. Um, okay, so, and my last, my last traditional question, um, do you have a question for me? Oh, man, um. It can be any, okay, one like, question. any, any I have, topic. I have one question. Okay. So, how would you, how, okay, what, what do you imagine the apocalypse is like? Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> you shouldn't let me ask questions. This is exactly why it's 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 dangerous. So I I could see the apocalypse happening. I think like one well, like one of one of three ways. Um, it's either going to be some natural disaster that we have absolutely no control over. Um, so like solar flare or asteroid or you know, just something that we cannot control that just happens, um, that like shoves us back into, I mean, regardless, you know, it's, it's an apocalypse. So it's like, we, we will be our, our technological prowess and our culture will be like bumped back, you know, a couple centuries. Sure. Um, it will either be a man-made thing. Um, so like some sort of war with, a country that has nuclear capabilities, um, which, you know, given the president that we have and given the two countries that he is currently kind of at odds with, yeah, <laughs> um, like that's, that's a, like that feels, that feels a little less likely. Cause it, it seems like there may be some like checks and balances that, you know, like in the event that something like that would happen, there's, there, there are, um, mechanisms to like, it's the only, it's like the nth possibility and a, a bunch of other stuff has to have to align in order to make that happen. Um, sure. Or I could see it as a, as a man-made natural disaster. Um, so like, yes. global, like essentially to me, it'd be like global warming that causes all of this extra, all this other stuff to happen mm-hmm. that we could have prevented, but we didn't. Um, and I, I feel like of, of the three, the man-made natural disaster to me feels the most hopeful in that, like, I don't think that we would lose as much in that instance. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like, there would probably be, you know, like, wars over water or wars over, like, better land. There would probably be lots of, like, um, government upheaval with, like, people fleeing places or, you know, like, even even more strain put on... um, put on governments given like, you know, like massive migrant movement. Um, but I think that we would be in a better place to kind of weather that no pun intended. Um, sure. <laughs> given, given like technology and given that like, you know, we would still be pretty far along to, to kind of like figure out this, whatever happened, but it would just be, you know, it'd be a new normal that we would have to deal with. That would be terrible. Um, I think a, like some sort of, man-made holocaustal war would be devastating um because i i think that like it would be so much loss of life in such a you know like i don't know like there'd be a just a total upheaval of like world like globalization Mm -hmm. and world government just initially there's just like things would just be different and I think that it would be, that would be, I think, a little bit more difficult to come back from because it would be something that we sure. did 
to ourselves and there there'd be lots of like old or lots of prejudices and lots of you know sure. biases that would have to be overcome later um and i think a like a natural disaster would be devastating but i think maybe would be a little easier to come back from because it would be something that's like nothing that humans did to ourselves it would just be like this mm -hmm. thing that happened um and hopefully that would at least initially cause people to be like oh we can like we need to to band together and help each other because like we're all sort of in this you know there's sure. this thing that happened to all of us and in, instead of you know some of us but i don't yes. know. i don't i don't know if that's a it's if that's a good answering of your question it is a totally good answer um but yeah i don't know i i kind of have a feeling that like humanity will continue to do what humanity does for oh we always will a long a long time <laughs> yes um, yeah i don't know i don't depending upon what what apocalypse happens um i mm. don't i don't know how i personally would fare in yeah. it um, sure. I mean, uh, granted, like if there's some sort of you know like nuclear war being uh, mm -hmm. in Baltimore, relatively close to the capital, maybe is not sure. the best the best place to be. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I've I've actually I've thought about that a lot. Of like, if if something if some sort of apocalypse happens, like what is the likelihood of of my continued survival? Um, and I I I don't know. I don't it does, I don't think it looks good for me. No, I don't think so for any of us. <laughs> I'll be honest. Yeah. And honestly, maybe that's better. Yeah. Because fuck humanity, you know? Like, we're kind of shits. Yeah. Yeah. I really that's, like... That's I, my, I stand by that statement. I mean, I love people. I, I want us to all be happy and live in rainbows and sunshine, but I don't know if I think that is happening. Yeah. Yeah. But, Yeah. Well, that's a that's a nice uplifting place to leave in this podcast. Yeah, I'm, I really I'm I'm all about it, you know, like happy ending. Um, so this has been uh, so poetry. <laughs> uh, I would like to thank y'all all for listening. Um, thank you everyone who's been listening on SoundCloud. Um, I like there have been people I I don't know who the y'all are giving me like thirty something plays in a day, but thank you. Um, <laughs> This is something that I've I've never done, um, but I would like to say if anybody would like to rate and review me on either iTunes or Stitcher, um, please feel free. Um, uh, if you want to, if not, it's cool. It's whatever. Um, but um, I think I think that that will probably do it. Uh, Joanna, do you have any any final parting words that you'd like to instill upon the, the oh, listeners? Just thank you, you know, as always for listening and, you know, I'm always grateful to talk about poems and, you know, that's, it's a joy and a privilege and that's kind of it. Yeah. Uh, cool. Okay. So, um, I don't know for people in the United States, it's Memorial Day tomorrow. Um, read a poem or two, read two poems. Everyone else in the world, you can just read one because you probably have to go to work. Huh. Um, but uh, thank you all for listening, and I will uh, catch you all next time.